Well, one of the many ideas in the Bible that seems kind of counterintuitive to us is the idea that instead of death coming out of life, life, at least for the believer in Christ, comes out of death. It's counterintuitive. And by life, I don't just mean spiritual life. Clearly, that's part of the deal, and we've spent some time talking about the fact that, you know, we don't even desire a relationship with Christ until He comes to us in our state of spiritual death and by the operation of His Spirit upon our hearts, upon our minds, upon our souls, literally raises us from the dead, makes us alive, gives us our faith in Jesus. And then what does He say about how to live? Because He coins it in terms of death and life. In fact, life coming out of death, he comes to us and says, okay, now you're in a relationship with me. Let me give you kind of in a nutshell how now you are to live. You're to get up every day and to die, language of death, to yourself. Your plans, agendas, goals, the dying things of this dying world, you are to live a life in which you're crucifying you that you might, by the power of my spirit, live for me and in living for me, find the life you're looking for. So what's coming out of death then? Life. Life comes out of death, but God also speaks of that in terms of our physical bodies. Jesus Christ was physically raised from the dead. He meets with his disciples. He eats with his disciples. They touch him. They see him. They handle him. Their language in describing him is very careful so as to say, you know, this isn't a ghost we're dealing with. And yet, what also does he promise for us? Well, just like He died and was raised. What is our future? Because it's not a future in which life leads to death. It's a future in which death ultimately leads to life. And so the order is reversed. It's death, it's burial, and it's life. That's different from the order of our lives. I mean, when you think about the way that we're formed and shaped and live and all of that, just the chronology of it all, we're conceived in life. And we then become this developing human being that at some point is born as an infant. And then at some point develops into, well, you know, one of the terrible twos, right? A toddler. And then at some point develops into a little boy that goes fishing with dad or a little girl who maybe goes to the mall to get her nails done with mom. Great season. And then develops into adolescence, believe it or not for us, been a great season too. And then develops into a fully grown, mature, at least physically, man or woman who at about age 35 or 40, if you're a guy, feels the need to grow a Fu Manchu and buy a motorcycle, all right? Or in my case, a small boat. There's just nothing rational about boat ownership. I could rent a boat once a month. It would cost me less and I'd use it more. Think about it. But it still makes me happy to have it. I'm not going to lie. So anyway, you do that. And then here's the deal. If the motorcycle doesn't get you, some other accident will get you. If an accident doesn't get you, disease will get you. If disease doesn't get you, old age and infirmity is knocking at your door. We live, we die, we're buried, and then we come to the Bible, however, and it has a totally different world. Or does it? It invites us through the imagination of faith into a world that says, nope, no. Here's how it works for the believer in Christ. There's death, there's burial, and there's life. And that's true spiritually, and that's true physically. And you know what else? That actually is true also if you have eyes to see it in the world in which we live. Now, that's a kicker, isn't it? One of the things that you've got to get a hold of is that the world of the Bible is not disconnected from the world that we live in. In fact, it is integrally connected. It is intimately connected. 
It's fully integrated. And one of its major crossroads is the idea of resurrection. It is this idea that instead of life, death, and burial for the believer in Christ, it's death, burial, and life. And we see it every single day. I've shared this many times, particularly if you've attended funerals here, but I want you to understand, and this is one of my big points, this isn't a funeral message. It applies. This is a message for life and living. Every single day we see death, burial, and resurrection. We're not even aware of it. We don't even comprehend it. Every day of your life, for example, the sun has set. Not most days. Every day. And how has God ordained that you witness that every day if indeed you're paying attention from your vantage point standing here on planet Earth? You witness it in such a way that as you watch it set, it looks like it is literally descending into the ground. And as it descends into the ground, what happens in the world in which you're living? It gets dark. It gets cool. And even at some point, it gets quiet, which is why, you know, you think about calling the police at three if your neighbor is having a party, and they're still making a lot of noise. It's unnatural that it be loud at that time of day, and even the police agree, I found. But think about it. What is that? It's death, and it's burial. And it ushers in this little while called night, at the end of which, if you're standing on this coast... You get to watch the sun come up out of the ground. Spraying light and warmth and all of the activities of life then start, including noise, as it comes. So then what is the sequence? Death, burial, resurrection. And by the way, during the midst of the night, what are you absolutely confident is going to happen? You are absolutely confident after the death and burial that resurrection is coming. Guys, it's training us. It's not by mistake that God has written that into the created order. And then, of course, at some point after the sun goes down, hopefully at least you go to sleep, don't you? Now think about that process for a second because you've done that every day too. What do you do? Well, if you're me, you turn the air down to about 71 because you like it cool. When you go to sleep, you turn on a fan. It goes 900,000 miles an hour above your bed. Cool. You turn off every light. Frankly, I like to take the alarm clock and flip it face down. I'm a little bit of a freak about these things. But you want it dark. What about noise? If there is a drippy faucet in your bathroom, you're freaking out, aren't you? It's unnatural. You want it quiet. You get into your bed. Let me give you language. I didn't come up with this. We use this language. Sort of like the weatherman says, the sun rises. It's language of resurrection. What do you do when you get in your bed? That thing that you lie in, hopefully, still. You bury yourselves in the covers. And then you sink into a state of unconsciousness. Death, burial, and what happens in the morning? In the morning you rise, don't you? You wake up and throw off your covers. You get up and turn on the lights. The noises of life and activity begin to buzz all around you now, and that's cool, that's good, that's normal, that's right. And all the way through the night, what is your confident expectation? And so far, you have not been disappointed as far as I can tell. It is that when you sleep, death and burial, you will rise every day. And you stumble down the hallway. Everybody stays out of your way because they know that you need coffee. You're a coffee addict. 
or maybe it's just me. So you make your way down to the kitchen because you need to get a cup of coffee and maybe you need to feed yourself some food. Now, wait a minute. Hang on. Let's step back from it. What is that stuff? It's stuff that has died, isn't it? It's cut off from its life source. Not only has it died, by the way, but if you step into the world of the Bible, which again is not separated from our world, but fully integrated with it and just start pulling out the emblems of suffering from the Bible, what do you have? You have things that are crushed. You have that which is ground. You have that which endures heat. What is all that? It's judgment. And you take these things that have suffered the emblems of suffering and and judgment and that are indeed dead into your body. You bury them deep within you right about here. And what does your body do? Out of that which is dead, it derives life. What's the sequence? Death, burial, life, life out of death. And then you get dressed, you're ready now to begin to integrate with the world. You've had your coffee, it's been 10 minutes, you're beginning to be revived. It's the word of life. And now you've got to go somewhere. You're going to go to the mall, you're going to go to school, you're going to go to work, you're going to go, I don't care where, you're going to go somewhere. So you get dressed appropriately to wherever you're going, you walk out of the door, what do you see? Well, if it's my yard, you see weeds, but in your yard, probably grass, and maybe it needs to be mowed. You start to recognize grass and bushes and trees and flowers and plants and all kinds of fauna, all of which sprung forth from a seed that died. (laughs) And get this, was buried in the ground. Came forth from the ground, didn't it? far more beautiful than it was when it went in and far more productive as well. And who knows, maybe if you have a butterfly garden like we have on the east side of our preschool here, you get to see a butterfly. Butterflies are cool, man. I really like butterflies. And if a butterfly lands on my hand, I'm not overly freaked out about it. But put a caterpillar on me and I'm going to scream like a six-year-old girl. (laughs) Caterpillars are, and I'm just going to say it, icky. They are. They're icky and they're sticky and they're slimy and they're gross. They're these ugly little earthbound creatures who one day climb up a branch or a leaf or wherever it is that they go. And what do they do for themselves? They spin themselves a cocoon. They spin themselves a shroud. They make for themselves a tomb from which they emerge. No longer ugly and icky, but beautiful and breathtaking. No longer earthbound, but free to ride the winds. See, the world of the Bible and the world that we live in are not two different worlds. They're not disconnected. They are connected big time. And one of their major intersections is the idea of resurrection. It's the idea that instead of death coming out of life, that for the believer in Christ, something very, very, very different happens. Life comes out of death. And so if you step back from all of that for a moment, then what is it that the world of the Bible and what is it also that the world in which we live in, again, that are fully integrated, teaching us, training us, calling us every single day to look for? They're calling us to look for the one who can bring life out of death because here's what else they teach us. It's sort of a sister lesson. They teach us that we are not that person. 
I cannot bring life out of death. You cannot bring life out of death. They're training us to look for one who is better, one who is greater, one who transcends, one who alone has actually done it. They're calling us to look for Christ. And here's the big idea for the day. That actually matters. And it matters not just at funerals, guys. It certainly does matter then, but it matters every day of every one of our lives in real and practical and life-changing kinds of ways. We pick up our study today in John chapter 16, verse 16, where Jesus, again, on the night that he's betrayed, he's delivering his last sermon, in a sense, if you will, before he suffers death, says this to his disciples. He tells them what's coming. He says, guys, a little while and you will see me no longer. And here's why, because I am going to suffer and then I'm going to die and then I'm going to be buried. You will see me no longer. But then he says, and again, a little while, and now what's going to happen? Well, now you will see me because after that little while, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And so Jesus comes to us and he speaks about his sleep of death, if you will, as lasting only a little while. That's the way sleep works. Sometimes a lot less of a while than we would have liked. Isn't that true? Sleep is something you expect to wake up from. And sleep, meaning death for Jesus was quite obviously something he expected to wake up from. In fact, he told his guys in advance, I'm going to be asleep for like a little while, and then I'm coming back. And what's cool about that is that as you kind of back out of it for a minute, you know, you stop after reading just one verse and you begin to ponder what that means for you, for your life, and you start looking for those intersections between the world of the Bible and the world that we live in, because again, they're all over the place, including over this idea of resurrection. And you begin to look at how the New Testament, for example, talks about death for the believer in Christ. How does Jesus talk about death for the believer in Christ? Because as we went through John chapter 11, many moons ago at this point, he spoke of it as sleep. How does Paul talk about death for the believer? He speaks of it as sleep. And not a sleep that we can wake ourselves up from. No, we've got to find the one who can. It's a sleep that Jesus wakes us up from. And that should make a difference in our lives and not just at funerals. But now, today, tomorrow, this week. I think, for example, that should make us a generous people. I'm going to go even beyond that and say, I think that of all the peoples on the earth, not only should we be the most joyous, I've said that in the past, I think that we also should be the most generous people. I really do. It should make us give, if you will, differently of our time and give differently of our talents and give differently of our treasure, meaning differently from everyone else in the world. Differently. Why? Because our security is not in the dying things of this dying world. It is in a resurrected Jesus who transcends the dying things of this world, who comes and rescues and makes us alive spiritually, who calls us in a relationship with Him and says, look, the life that you're trying to find by living to all of these other things will only be found by you if you die to all of these other things and live unto me. I am your security and provider. Now, just like I did, give your life away in love. For God so loved, He gave. 
We should give differently. I think we should worship differently than the rest of the world. First of all, we should worship a different God than the rest of the world. And that's like one of those points where you kind of got to go, okay, yeah, is that me? But we should. And not only that, but our worship should not be as fickle as the worship of the rest of the world because, I mean, our tendency is to kind of worship this until it fails us, and then to worship this until it fails us, and then to worship this until it fails us, abandoning everything that's failed us and seeking like crazy to find the thing, the one, the whatever that finally won't. But what do you do with our God when it looks like He's failed us? Because sometimes, guys, it looks that way. I talked to somebody after the first service, and she said, you know, sometimes I, she goes, I just want you to know kind of where I'm at. I don't even know why I'm here. I, A, don't trust God, and sometimes I hate Him because of what's happening. And when you hear her story, you understand it and sympathize with it. We're called to hold hands with the Lord in the dark a lot. We're called to live our lives knowing that maybe we're just never going to get answers to some of these questions, at least before death and then, oh yeah, life on the other side of that. We're called to go to books like Job and recognize that conversations happen in heaven that actually affect the way that we live here. How many Jobs do we have here who go through all of their lives, experience massive devastation, never get an answer to why, but nevertheless hold on to the Lord. And here's why. Because our Lord is a resurrected Lord. Not even death can forestall or prevent Him from fulfilling, not some of His promises, every single one of them. And I think sometimes the lives that He gets the greatest glories on out of and that's his goal, are the ones who hang on when it doesn't look like you should. Our worship should not be fickle. Not at all. So we should worship differently, and also I think we should create and pursue different goals. Now think about that. We should create and pursue different goals. What are your goals? What are your plans? What are your dreams? What are your ambitions? Where are you going? How do they differ? Well, from everybody else. And we should create and pursue different goals because we don't live for this world. We ought not to then live for this world. We live for Christ, who calls us, by the way, to live in light of the unseen realities of another world that are visible only to our eyes of faith. And I think sometimes we need to open those eyes and see that other world. And as a result of the creation and the pursuit of these different goals, we should live lives that at times look a little nuts to people who don't understand why we do what we do. They look at us and go, man, you know, I don't know what you did with your reputation there, but doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand what you're doing with your business here. This is crazy. I don't, I don't understand this career choice. You mean you could have and you didn't, and here's why? what we do with our kids, the purity that we pursue sexually, the purity that we pursue ethically, it ought not to make sense unless Christ is raised. But if Christ is raised, then it makes sense. And then, yes, I think that the reality of a resurrected Savior and His promises to one day resurrect us should cause us to face death differently, death of others who die in faith in Jesus and even our own deaths. For believe it or not, we're all dying, all of us, just some a little faster than others. 
We cling to this life. It's like native to us, and I understand it. I do it too. I'm not saying necessarily that's a bad thing, but I do say that the Scriptures come to us and say, hey, you know, a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, the next life is really a whole lot better. Like, you're not going to get there and pine away for the things you've left behind. You're not even going to get there and pine away for the ones you've left behind, particularly if the ones you've left behind share your same faith. We are connected to our loved ones through Jesus Christ. And in connecting to our loved ones through Jesus Christ, look, we might be absent for a little time. That feels like eternity if we're the one left behind. But in light of eternity is really nothing. But we'll be united to them through Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. And aside from all of those things, our bodies, the bodies of those who die in Christ, well, they're like a seed planted, aren't they? What does the seed do? In its day, the seed comes forth beautifully, productively, very different from the way that it's planted. And so Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, says this to his disciples. He says, a little while, and you, my disciples, will see me no longer, because I'm going to suffer, die, and be buried for your sins. And then again, a little while, and you, well, you will see me, because I'm going to be raised from the dead. And then we read that these guys are like, what? They have no concept of a Messiah who's going to die and be buried, and then be raised from the dead, and then leave after that and leave them in the care of another one, the Holy Spirit, who we talked about last week. And yet that's the plan. That's that's the sequence of events. And so some of his disciples, they're hearing all of this, and, you know, I mean, you can imagine they're struggling with it a little bit. So they said to one another, what is that, this that he said to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. And so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus then, who knows this, recognizes it and speaks up. We read that Jesus, who knew that they wanted to ask him about all of this stuff, said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, here is exactly what you guys are going to experience in the next few days. As you watch me arrested, as you watch me suffer, as you watch me crucified, dead, and be buried, and after a little while raised. First, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Look for the word joy. You will be sorrowful, but then your sorrow will turn into what? It's the word of the day in many ways. Your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour of pain, her hour of suffering, her hour of labor has come. But when she has delivered the baby and her suffering is over and her labors have brought forth life, life, she no longer remembers the anguish for the what? For the joy, that's twice, that a human being has been born into the world. And so also you have sorrow now as you hear about my impending death. And as you even now begin to experience that, that sorrow, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again on the morning of the third day. 
and your hearts too will rejoice. And no one will take your joy, we're up to four, from you. No one will take your joy from you. And that day, Jesus says, you will ask for nothing of me because then you'll understand all this stuff that you're struggling with now. And then also, you'll be asking of the Father. And that day, he says, you'll ask for nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father, the one who will receive my death and burial as the full payment for your sins and the one who will raise me from the dead, that I might give life to you as well. He says, whatever you ask of that Father in my name, he will give it to you if you ask it in my name. If you ask it according to my will, if you're laying down your life and dying to you and truly taking up my life and living to me, if you're abiding in the vine and all the images that he's dealt with, that we've dealt with over the past few weeks, as my desires flow into you and you begin to express them as your own, as you ask it in my name, the Father will give it to you. Until now, he says, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy, that's five times now, may be, yeah, you know, mostly full. Nope all the way to the top of the cup. It's pretty cool. And the joy that that he's referring to here, I think it's pretty clear it's a liberating kind of a joy. In other words, it's a joy that comes and it sets you free. And, And you're thinking, okay, well, how does it set me free? Well, contextualize it. How did it set these guys free? What happened? I mean, Jesus is going to forecast for these guys kind of in a second what's coming next, so you'll see it. But he's going to be arrested. And when he's arrested, what do these guys do? They run. They abandon the Lord. And a couple of them, it seems, kind of follow from afar, you know, the story of Peter, and he denies Jesus every time somebody comes to him and goes, hey, aren't you also a Galilean? Hey, aren't you also one of his followers? And one time he does it like with cursing and all this stuff, I guess, to kind of prove that probably he isn't. They abandon Christ, who then dies, and what do these guys do? Hide! They hang, they lay low, man. They cower in fear of the people who conspired against Jesus, who killed the Lord. And what changes them? What changes them is joy. It's the joy of seeing the resurrected Jesus, which, by the way, is the only thing that makes sense of their behavior. See, what happens is they see the resurrected Lord. They are free by joy. And what do they do? Instead of cowering in fear and hiding away from the people who have crucified Christ, they march right into the very temple that crucified Jesus. They proclaim that the crucifixion of Jesus was this great massive sin that these guys committed. But nevertheless, that God, you know, like with life and death, has turned it completely around, accepted their murder of his son as the payment for the sins of all who put their faith and trust in him, and vindicated completely Christ, his message, his gospel, and his disciples by raising the Lord Jesus physically, bodily from the dead. Now, when they went into the temple to do that, what exactly do you think they thought would happen next for them? Because I'm going to go with suffering and death. The reality is these men became pariahs 
in their community. Family abandoned them. Friends abandoned them. Abandoned and experienced massive economic consequences. All of them suffered physically, mentally, in every different kind of way, and exhaustively. They bore in their bodies, as Paul says, the marks of Jesus Christ, meaning scars, literally. And all but about one of them died a martyr's death in horrific fashion. That's quite a transformation, don't you think? I mean, I don't know. I'm not buying the idea that these guys went and fought off the Roman guards and stole the body of Jesus. The cowering followers of Christ, right? They, they fight off the Roman guards. They steal the body of Jesus. They hide it away. They come up with the most elaborate hoax in human history, okay? And they get together and go, all right, here's the deal. We're going we're gonna to do this, and, and this is what's going to happen to us, and everybody's in, right? They were set free from joy. The joy of seeing death defeated. The joy of seeing Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And here's what that set them free from. It set them free from their fear, from their concern, from their anxiety, from their worry, from their pretensions over, from whatever it is that held them back from fully, publicly, openly, visibly living for and speaking for Christ. Death had been defeated. I mean, you can't even take their life. So why not? Why not them? Why not me? Why not you? It's a liberating joy. And what it ought to liberate us from are all of the things that we look at in terms of following Christ and going, yeah, but if I do that, well, then I'm going to have to... Wow. So the resurrecting reality of Jesus brings a liberating joy, and it brings an overcoming peace. By overcoming, I mean a peace that overcomes the tribulations, the troubles, the trials of this world, which come, Jesus continues in verse 25. He says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour, however, is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day, you will ask in my name, there it is again, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, and here's why, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and, has come, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world through death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension, and going to the Father and his disciples said, ah, oh, now you're speaking plainly, finally, you know, and not using figurative speech, and now we know that you all, you know, you know all things, and... Do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answers them, do you? You will. It'll all come together. I'm not done with you guys yet. But let me tell you what's coming. He says, do you now believe? Behold. The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when I will be arrested and you will run from me in a fear that only the joy of seeing me raised from the dead can squelch, can put to death, 
can set you free from. He says, Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. And here's why I've told you all of this. I've said these things to you, so that where? In your circumstances, in your trials, in your tribulations? No, in me, says Jesus. Even in the midst of your circumstances, trials, and tribulations, you may have the kind of peace that overcomes them in the midst of this world. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. And here's why. I've overcome the world. And how did he do that? Death, burial, and now you know the pattern, don't you? Life. Resurrection. And so death for the Christian is kind of like night. It lasts for a little while. And then there's a rise, you see? There's rising. It ends in life, in light. It's kind of like sleep. It's something you expect to wake up from. It's, it's like coffee. It, it's something from, from which you are revived, is the idea. It's like a seed planted. It, it breaks forth in its day. And right now, and please don't mistake this, we're all kind of like icky caterpillars, at least in comparison with what we will be. For a day is coming when we will no longer be ugly morally, that's the idea, or any other way. We'll be free of that, and we'll be made completely and entirely beautiful. And a day is coming when we'll no longer be earthbound, if you will, like a caterpillar, but free to ride the winds of God's Spirit, uninhibited, unhindered by sin and problems and issues and sorrows. That day is coming, and that reality from the world of the Bible that intersects entirely with the world that we live in should change everything, and not just about the way that we approach funerals, but the way that we approach everything. It should infuse us with a liberating joy that liberates us to be generous, that liberates us to worship even when it's hard, that liberates us to worship joyfully, that causes us to think about our lives and be strategic about them, realizing that we're dying to the dying things of this world and living to the living Christ and in Him finding life. Okay, so how do I organize my life in such a way to do that best? How do I do that? And know this, that when you do, it's going to look a little nuts. And when you hear that you're crazy, hear that that's good, for Jesus is raised. So it should set you free, and it should bring you an overcoming peace. This world is not our home. This life and death is not the end. The pattern is not life, death, and burial for us. The pattern is death, burial, and life. Amen.